Just over a year ago, EMS and the world entered pandemic mode. To help me review all of that, I have two immediate past presidents. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. Welcome to this week's EMS One Stop Extra, and I'm delighted to welcome two guests that have played a major part in keeping us in the public eye, keeping our lobby going really, really strongly during the last 365 days. And today, I think we're getting a little bit of the band back together, so I'm also looking forward to that. My guests today are Gary Ludwig, the immediate past president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs, and Matt Zabadsky, the immediate past president of NEMT. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Welcome, Robin. And Gary, isn't immediate past the best prefix of any title? <laughs> you know what, Matt, I, I can't disagree with you on that one. Uh, it, it seems like I'm starting to sleep through the night. I'm not getting those text messages or phone calls at two or three in the morning. So so in a certain degree, as sort of your PR chaser lived a little bit of this with you as well, it's been amazing to follow you guys and obviously the work that you put in for all of our industry all of our associations, and of course, uh, as we'll discover, the collaboration and partnerships that have emerged since then. But before we get into to the discussion, uh, we're just going to get right into the narration of uh, this week's article, which was Adapting to Survive, How COVID-19 Defined EMS. So uh, sit back and listen in. In the past year, EMS has been on the front lines, has provided care, and has sacrificed in equal measure. To Americans, March Madness usually sees college rivalry, brackets, Sweet 16s and Final Fours. That was until 2020. At the outset, it all seemed mad, but as we now know, it all turned to tragedy, loss, and a different world 365 days later. On March 11, 2020, Dr. Tedros Adhanom, Director General of the World Health Organization, declared COVID-19 a pandemic, at the time identifying over 118,000 cases in 110 countries, and the sustained risk of further global spread. Two days later, Donald Trump declared a national emergency and travel ban, and on March the 19th, California led the nation in issuing a statewide stay-at-home order, and the lockdown began. For EMS, like in every other disaster and emergency we faced, we ran headlong into, not away, from the looming storm. What happened next fully supports my long-held theory that EMS and ambulance services are the last great health and social care safety net the Marine Corps of the Healthcare Navy. In the opening year of the assault on COVID-19, EMS has been on the front lines and provided care and made sacrifice in equal measure. As past IAFC President Gary Ludwig says, we've been at the tip of the spear. Additionally, the financial lifeblood that supports EMS operation has also been threatened. In an industry where income is mainly derived from transporting a patient to hospital, many locations saw a precipitous fall in call volume, which in real terms equals reduced funding. To fully illustrate the effects of COVID-19 on the EMS industry, Nemsis produced a weekly by-the-numbers set of charts, which incidentally is still available, based on over 50 million annual calls 
to demonstrate 911 call volume and activity over several conditions affected by COVID-19. The results are fascinating and show an ebb and flow of patient conditions and the effect on the volume of EMS activity. In the last 12 months, we have been ever-present and fully following the Darwinian principle that to survive, we have to adapt. Where COVID-19 spiked, EMS call volume rose to levels never before seen in jurisdictions, while the debilitating effect of the virus on staffing left services with a much reduced ability to respond. The initial surge in New York and New Jersey saw the deployment of the National Ambulance Task Force with hundreds of crews deploying from all over the country to help out. Elsewhere, the lack of calls caused an immediate reduction in income and, in some cases, furloughs due to lack of both calls and money. The reality that EMS is a business and no haul equals no pay hit home in 2020. To bridge the income gap and because of the nature of EMS is always to do the right thing for the good of the community, many agencies diversified their services to meet the immediate needs of their local populations and health systems. One EMS agency, with a new hire class that may have otherwise faced furlough, diverted their trainees overnight to local authority contact tracing specialists. American Ambulance of Fresno offered its class to the County Public Health Contact Tracing Medical Investigation Team until they got up to speed. Similarly, all over the country, agencies became the mainstay of testing stations with staff that otherwise may have been sent home. On the East Coast, Pro-EMS of Cambridge, Massachusetts teamed up with its hometown neighbours Harvard and MIT and their combined Broad Institute to administrate a wide-ranging nationwide COVID-19 testing system processing over 1 million tests. Many examples of EMS supporting EDs and nursing homes came to the fore. In the San Francisco Bay Area, Royal Ambulance, experiencing a fall in volume in the in-facility transport business, sent more than 40 EMTs to eight facilities as part of its Helping Hands program. Paramedics also supported EDs when nursing outages caused staffing shortfalls. The transport and transfer of potential or positive COVID-19 patients occurred from the evacuation of cruise ship passengers to quarantine centres, to mass transfers of prisoners from jail to hospital as the virus spread inside the lockdown lockdown. The nation's EMS has stood up to meet any task that has come its way and has done so with distinction. On the national scene, the requirement for national associations to move their legislative agendas to one side and unify as one has paid dividends. Combined lobbying, responding to the same call to action to ensure that Congress and the White House has considered all things EMS has been effective. This week, the US Senate passed language for Medicare coverage of emergency treatment in place of lower acuity patients by ground ambulance service providers and suppliers during the COVID-19 public health emergency. The American Ambulance Association, along with the International Association of Fire Chiefs, International Association of Firefighters, National Association of EMTs and National Volunteer Fire Council all pushed for passage of the bill language. The hope is that this set of partnerships for the good and benefit of EMS will continue. Despite the great work by all, the toll on our profession, industry and way of life has been tragic. The role of honour, the line of duty death toll has been significant and, sadly, it continues to grow. Many have made the ultimate sacrifice and we will never forget that. As we strive for the creation of a national EMS memorial on our nation's capital, perhaps this may provide a sad impetus to get the project over the finish line. One year on, as the most recent wave of the virus has fallen to a level that enables the healthcare world to at least cope, 
the national vaccine rollout now sees a million inoculations a day, meaning there might just be light at the end of the tunnel. EMS has had one heck of a year. We've been ever-present at the front and centre of every spike in every locality. The last 365 days has defined us as an industry. The public has seen more of our heroism and sacrifices via national news than it ever did before. Did we ever think we would be on the front cover of Time magazine? While that may not seem like a big deal, it certainly captured the zeitgeist of the year that 2020 was for us. Looking to the future, the waiver that will grant reimbursement for treatment in place may prove so successful that it becomes a genie that proves difficult to put back in the bottle once the emergency is over. Treatment in place and alternative destinations may assist us to stay in business and give the patient the right assessment and treatment first time, every time. No matter what the next 365 days will bring us, we know that we can rise to the challenge and be the universal safety net while looking after our own and reflect on a job. Very well done. Guys, thank you for uh, enduring my uh, my dulcet English tones there. Um, but take us back 365 days, Gary. Obviously, we started a challenge that we've never had to face before. You know, how would you summarise the, the opening kind of uh, battle, if you like, of uh, what COVID was and is? Yeah, I you know, there's, there's no words that would adequately describe um, what it was like that first week. We're sitting here 365 days later. And, um, you know, it just we were just getting hit in all directions. I was actually in Washington, D.C. When, when most of this came down. I was um, at various places, including um, the Capitol, the White House. Um, and at the end of the week, uh, we were scheduled to actually go and lay a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers. And um, they closed all the federal institutions. And so just uh, just that, that tumultuous time, it was like a flip of the switch that we all of a sudden were in a normal sequence of events in our, in our lives and in this country. And overnight, um, things just turned, including the stock market. Today is the anniversary of the stock market dropping 12% in one day. So um, it, it was surreal. And, uh, you know, again, I don't know if I can truly describe what had happened because I was getting hit. Uh, I was, I'm sure my peers were at the other associations, such as Matt. I was getting hit with uh, text messages, phone calls, emails. And uh, um, it, it was just, um, just, just a very tumultuous time, if I could use that word. You can. And just for people listening, uh, Gary's also uh, an active fire chief in Champaign, Illinois. And if you hear the tones, then, uh, of course, it's uh, business as usual up there. Matt, when did you realize that this is going to be a long haul for all of us? We had just finished EMS today in Tampa. And my wife and I had gone to Daytona Beach for bike week and they canceled bike week while we were there. And <laughs> He said, okay. Is that an indicator of severity of world world <laughs> events, Matt? In addition to sort of saying, how do they even do that when they've got a quarter million people on the beach in Daytona? Um, but much like Gary, all of the association leadership were really starting to get ramped up, hearing the things that were going on, primarily starting with the workforce and the concerns that we were having with the workforce from a disease contraction perspective, from the lack of ability to protect the people through lack of PPE, learning quickly that the strategic national stockpile was none of those. Um, and how are we gonna protect our field employees and, and other employees that were so important? 
and ramping things up pretty quickly. So, you know, certainly by the beginning of March um, was really the big time for most of us to all realize that not only is our world changing, but how we work with each other is going to have to change. Right. And that's really a nice segue into coming back to you, Gary, working with each other. Of course, what happened fairly early on is that uh, we had a major meeting of the minds and uh, the associations uh, got together and worked as one. And I'm delighted to say that continues. But uh, can you remember what uh, caused that kind of first uh, get together and, uh, and joint piece of lobbying? I'm trying to reach back, but I know that... Um... One of the things I had done, we were actually monitoring this at the IEFC back in January when we were starting to get reports out of China. Right. I can remember the first report was like of January the 29th. And then we started looking at the John Hopkins website and the World Health Organization um, and as they were tracking this around the world. And then we implemented a coronavirus task force in February. I'm trying to remember the exact date. I think it was the latter part of February. I, I put John Sinclair from Washington State in charge of that. Um, but, you know, as we got into this, um, I, I want to reach back in my memory and I, I want to say, Matt, it was you and I that had a phone call. Um, and we started discussing some of the issues that were impacting our, our, our people out on the streets. And, uh, it's many of the things that Matt just described, the lack of PPE, the, the non-prioritization of EMS and fire when it came to PPE, um, the unknowns, and there were a lot of unknowns. This was a scary disease uh, that 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 the media had us just basically in 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 a you know in a hunker down mode. That if someone walked past you, you caught the disease, you're going to die, and uh, just all the fears that came around that. And I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but I think it started with a conversation with you and I, and it started segueing into talking about as they started talking about what the, what Congress and what the federal government was going to do and how we were going to play into that. And correct me if I'm wrong, Matt. Is that how you no, remember? I, remember I, I do, Eric. Gary, I remember the conversation very, very specifically. And um, you had reached out by text first and said, hey, are you available for a chat? And, and I can remember it was early in the morning. I think I was still in the locker room at our gym here at MedStar. And the three hot topics that we both started to collaborate on early on was, um, was PPE, number one, and, and getting to FEMA and others to make sure that EMS was prioritized because hospitals were getting a ton of PPE. But um, the second issue was the funding issue. Um, we had a bunch of people that were going out on leave. We were gonna have budget issues. Um, we had a whole bunch of, of personnel issues that we really wanted to have addressed. And then the third was testing and making sure that we could get um, EMS frontline healthcare workers, specifically fire and EMS and law enforcement to some extent um, at the top of the food chain when it came to being able to get tested so they can be cleared to either come back to work or they can be quarantined to prevent the spread in fire stations and, and other places. But yeah, that was a 45 minute conversation that really started the whole collaboration with a bunch of other associations as well. So I want to just give a quick shout out to uh, Aaron Reinert, who's the, uh, another IPP, the immediate past president of the uh, AAA, American Ambulance Association, wasn't available this morning, but we will get him on for a chat later on. But in the collaborative mode that everybody was in, how did you exercise your power of lobby influence and uh, reaching out to those on the Hill, Matt or Gary, or both? 
Well, I just want to say, Rob, before before Gary talks about because they've got a, an, a legislative affairs team that's unbelievable at the IFC. Um, literally in the conversation that Gary and I had, we were commenting, okay, who needs to come into the fold? Who else do we need to collaborate with? Who's got common issues? And literally as soon as we were off that phone call and only because uh, Aaron and I have known each other since the war of 1812, um, I called Aaron and said, okay, let, let's, let's get this Star Alliance going um, so that we can all start collaborating and that effort continues through today, so. Yes, that's when we tried to remodel the White House for you, if I remember that particular year. <laughs> that's exactly um, right. <laughs> anyway, Gary, let's uh, let's talk about legislating and influencing. Yeah, and, and, and Matt, I'm so glad Matt's on the call here because uh, Matt uh, obviously has a better, his memory is much better than mine. I, I kid people sometimes and say, you know, I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. And so... Uh, but um, as Matt was talking there, it certainly is bringing back memories for me and recollection of what actually had occurred. But, uh, and, and Matt is, is correct, we do have a rock star team of uh, government affairs people at the IIFC. We have three people there. And uh, one, is, it's led by our, by our director, which is Ken LaSalle. And Ken has been around Capitol Hill for I, I don't know how many years. In fact, he was part of the congressional staff for Senator McCain when Senator McCain was in office. And, um, and then, then he eventually trans over, transitioned over to us. And um, I'm always amazed that Ken uh, knows all the back passages and all the tunnels underneath the Capitol and other places like that, the shortcuts. So that's how well, and he knows so many people on Capitol Hill. So uh, we certainly got a foot in the door and I know NAEMT has an excellent uh, lobby, uh, uh, lobbyist also as does the AAA. And so um, it, was, it was part of just sitting down and talking about commonalities. And uh, although, uh, you know, I represent mostly fire, um, there's no doubt that, as I like to say, we pump more oxygen than we do water. And that was certainly true during the pandemic days. And our, as, as I also like to say, that most fire departments are really nothing but an EMS agency that sometimes goes to a fire call. So there, there are commonalities. Uh, between our association, even though we're predominantly a fire association, uh, along with the NAEMT and AAA. And so um, we might disagree on 2%, as Matt and I talked about, but that doesn't mean we have to throw the other 98% away. And so I think that formed the basis for a lot, more, a lot of our collaborative effort going forward. And what a 98% that's been, Gary. Matt, I mean, uh, obviously, we had some constraints in lobbying and, and uh, getting ourselves on the hill. And of course, we were constrained to Zoom. Um, do you think that helped or hindered? Honestly, Rob, I think it helped because what we have found is that it's much easier for congressional staffers and, and even elected officials to jump on a Zoom call for 10, 15, 20, 60 minutes um, from wherever they happen to be than it is to get through the maze and scheduling and all the things as it relates to uh, going to do a face-to-face -face meeting. I, we've had a, a number of those meetings with congressional representatives and their staff, and it's easier to do it, more convenient. And we just make sure that nobody, like you're doing right now, Rob, is to hit the record button because <laughs> it gets people a little bit nervous. But even as we plan our upcoming EMS on the Hill Day, we are finding that scheduling the appointments and even people willing to attend, virtually attend some of these conferences, attendance have gone up. Our registration for any EMTs EMS on the Hill Day is far ahead of where it has been Excellent. in years past because people can do it much more easily and the appointment scheduling is much easier um, just because you can do it virtually. 
of course, you know my weekend hobby, Matt, and therefore what I what I miss about the real EMS on the hill hill day is the sixteen thousand steps. Walking. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, you're making up for it, Rob, in California. Don't worry. Oh, I am. Yes, and by the way, do watch my hiking vlogs. I'm on hiking vlog number one hundred and two now. Um, anyway, so thank you for answering that question. But let's talk about. Of course, we must take a moment really to recognise the toll on our providers in terms of those we've lost and of course those that have now you know mental health wellness issues etc before i sort of ask my question i'm delighted I, I actually maintain the line of duty death register for the AAA in partnership with uh, dave bryson who's up at oems and uh, we agreed that we haven't seen a line of duty death for covid in a month which i think is a good thing now, I now know you've done thing. it and now uh, you've done it. No, no, don't. I'll edit this bit out, Matt, if you keep talking. No, but I think it's an excellent piece, an excellent bit of news. And, uh, you know, long may it continue. But, uh, Gary, I mean, you really, for me, have the sort of quote of the early part of the pandemic by saying we were at the tip of the spear. Um, and I firmly believe that. But obviously, we've lost a lot of people. Yeah. And I tell you what, that was, I, I, I had to come up with something to, you know, basically cause an effect and bring to our attention. Because, you know, as I said repeatedly, you know, the nurses and doctors, that's, that's what the media was focusing on was the hospitals, the nurses, right. the doctors, and the work that was going on in the emergency rooms and, and in the hospitals. And we can't discount that. But at the same time, as I tried to tell the media, as I tried to tell legislators, as I tried to tell others at the state level, you know, how do you think those patients got there? You know, they, they just didn't, you know, all of a sudden through some transformation appear in the hospital, they were typically brought there by our ambulances. And, uh, and so we were at the tip of the spear. That was my quote, and that was what I tried to stay on, on point with. And that is no pun intended, by the way. What I tried to stay on point with is and that is that um, we are just as critical a part of the healthcare system as what you see on TV uh, occurring in the hospitals. And so trying to get that point to resonate with the decision makers was was the effort on my part and 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 again i think all these associations jumped on that bandwagon also and, and i have yeah. to say and i'll toss it to you matt in a second but uh, for my part as the the triple a's communication chair we adopted what i called the double p policy which was uh publicity and politics if we can use the the front page of time magazine who the hell thought we'd be on the front page of time magazine but things like that in order to draw attention to enable you guys to do the politicking and i think that was by and large a, a, a roaring success sorry matt i interrupted you there no not at all rob the other thing that that to expand on what gary said is not only were we bringing these patients to the hospital so we were contacting them first but in, in many cases we were not bringing them to the hospital. And so to a large extent, our impact, our exposure of our personnel, the, the role that we were playing in these communities was dramatically different because we were helping keep patients who did not need to be in the hospital from being in the hospital, which even put our personnel at, at greater risk, both for the coronavirus and other things, but even to a certain extent from a liability perspective. So we needed to make sure that we were balancing that medical direction quality assurance with doing the right thing for the healthcare system, then of course the whole economic nightmare. Excellent. Now I'm going to come back to treatment in place uh, in, in in a question or two's time. But uh, as call volume generally fell in the areas that weren't in those hotspots, therefore call volume equals income equals potential furloughs equals the fact that we had to find 
other things to do. We had to find other ways of staying in business. And that's where my article, Adapting to Survive, I'm sort of, you know, uh, channeling my inner Darwin. But, uh, you know, what other things did you guys do uh, in addition to just, you know, sort of steam-driven EMS? So, uh, you know, Rob, here, like with many EMS systems and, and fire agencies across the country, early on it was getting involved in testing, right? Because there was yep. testing infrastructure issues. So many EMS agencies, fire agencies, stepped up very quickly, started doing testing. Some were doing contact tracing. Uh, California, Rob, a lot of it because of your leadership, uh, really led the effort in EMS getting involved and fire getting involved in contact tracing. But then as, as EMS and fire typically does, and you've heard this comment before, we are the Swiss army knife of, of healthcare. And as hospitals and public health agencies and others came to us and said, hey, we've got this gap. Can you guys fill it? you know, organizations like Gary's in, in Champaign, Illinois, yep. and, and other places said, sure, here's what we can do. And we can start it uh, in three hours. <laughs> we just did it. No, I agree. And as I said in the article, you know, no matter what color you find, you, your truck is, your, your ambulance is, you know, I just firmly believe that we are the, the Marine Corps of the healthcare Navy. So uh, I think we uh, hit the beach uh, hard. A any other stuff that you guys were doing, Gary, as sort of extras? Yeah, I, you know, and, and, and Rob, I, I didn't know you were keeping a registry of um, those of our brothers and sisters that yes. we've lost in this battle, and I, I commend you for that. I don't know if you know, the National Fallen, Fire, Fallen Firefighters Foundation is also doing that, and uh, I get a regular update on that, and unfortunately, we're at 166 right now, um, and that includes fire and EMS providers, EMS only, yeah. what they're tracking, 166 of our brothers and sisters that we have unfortunately lost during this war with this virus. And so uh, again, I applaud you for doing that. I didn't know you were doing that, but yeah. kudos to Thank you. you. Um, and, and if Aaron was here, I'd, I'll, I'll speak for Aaron by saying that of course, one of the things we tried to legislate in was the line of duty death within COVID for those that are in private services, but obviously are still doing 911 on the front line. When you look at all the images of the, the ambulance task forces, for example, that went into New York, they were all private ambulance companies, so, you know, pretty much in the main. Um, and of course, we did lose uh, those that worked for private companies. Um, and, you know, their reimbursement, their, you know, line of duty death benefits are still questionable. So there's still some work to do there. But uh, yeah, um, I think Aaron, number Aaron I, would say that if he was here. I know you would, Aaron. And, I, and that number I give uh, is also reflective. 166 is yeah. reflective of those that work in the Absolutely. private industry also. So, um, so but I, I tell you what, you know, and, and Matt's so right. Uh, Contract contact tracing was a big issue, but my biggest issue, what I was bombarded with from fire chiefs across this country was the lack of PPE. Uh, I heard from fire chiefs that were actually buying ponchos and raincoats, anything they could to try to protect their personnel out there. Uh, and then, you know, you look at the strategic national stockpile, FEMA has put us as a tier one when it came to priority, but <clears throat> unfortunately that material was going down to the states at the state level and the states were then reprioritizing us into other tiers. Uh, one particular state was actually leveling EMS and fire into the tier seven level as a priority when it came to, to the strategic national stockpile. Shocking. You know, I talked to one fire chief in Florida who ran a 16 station department, you know, regular uh, mid-sized department. And uh, at that point, out of 260-something thousand N95s that had been delivered, to Florida, he had seen 46 of them. That was it. I have pictures still of pallets being delivered to six counties in Southwest Missouri 
and that there's one pallet and there's one box of gloves on there. And I think there's a half a box of N95s and some draw sheets and that's about it. And that's supposed, that was supposed to supply six different counties full of fire and EMS, EMS providers in Southwest Missouri. So those are the things that I was, that I was bombarded with, consumed with on hearing from. And so it was so important, so imperative that we got that message out. And we had, we had um, one particular phone call with Pete Gaynor, who was the FEMA administrator. And I asked, outright asked him, do you value fire and EMS lives? And what is he going to say? Uh, right. Yes, I do. Right. What, yes, I do. But I said, well, I tell you what, it's not happening. Our people out here are not protected. They can't get PPE. And, I, and one of my arguments was just like DOT lays out what are the conditions and what are the criteria when they hand out highway funds, that when FEMA hands out these funds and they hand down these supplies to these states, they need to establish criteria for what is uh, for, for the usage of that equipment. And, uh, and so that was, it was contact tracing, but I'll tell you what, um, probably 99% of what I was dealing with was the lack of PPE out here for our providers. And, our and add to that, Gary, provider. not only the lack of it, but then coming up next was the cost of it, uh, the availability of it, and of course, the, uh, the, the bona fide nature of it. Was it a counterfeit? Was it real? Was it approved? Um, and so we, we went through all of those, that, that whole iteration of issues. And you're right. And, and, and then I was also getting reports. And so a lot of fire and EMS agencies were actually go, not relying on the strategic national stockpile. And they were trying to buy whatever they could off the market from Southeast, uh, somewhere along Southeast Asia, those countries in there. And uh, then I was getting reports that what was being shipped in was being seized by the right. federal government. Yep. Uh, yep. And, uh, and they were putting it into the strategic national stock stockpile. They denied that. People from FEMA denied that. Um, but but at the same time, uh, then I was getting word that the Department of Justice was actually the ones that were seizing it because it was fake, as you just described, Rob. Yeah. Our, we had a member, we had a doctor on our task force, um, and she was an expert on identifying fake material. And, uh, and she said, actually, 95, it was, it was a shocking number. It's on a webinar that we did. 95% of what was coming out of N95 out of China and all the other Southeast Asian countries over there was uh, actually fake. And that was that was really alarming in itself. So I'm going to stay with the mask theme for a second. I'm going to fast forward us to about, you know, three months ago, let's say. And of course, we've been wearing masks for all this time. And now we're starting to get complacent. Now people are starting to, uh, you know, get fed up with this. Um, mask complacency and PPE complacency, Matt, how has that affected, you know, the industry, do you think? So I think, Rob... EMS practitioners tend to be relatively pragmatic and, you know, fire departments, EMS agencies really understand the risks of the services that they provide. And almost every EMS agency, every fire agency that I know of are continuing to follow the CDC guidelines with regard to mask wearing and the other guidelines. I know we are here at MedStar and a number of agencies and our first response agencies are doing the same thing. It's, it's the complacency in the public and quite frankly, even our own team members, when they're not at work, 
that we are really concerned about. Uh, you know, I heard this great analogy in Texas, you know, football is a real thing, right? So uh, when they're interviewing some of the people after the governor lifted the mask mandate, one of the public health authorities said, you know, lifting the public, lifting the mask mandate now is sort of like spiking the ball on the nine yard line. <laughs> it's just, let's not do it yet. But you're right, people are done. They don't wanna wear the masks. Right. We, have, we are concerned that we're gonna see an uptick of coronavirus infections in our team members and in the whole industry, fire and EMS, because outside of work, they're gonna stop wearing them. They're gonna get community exposure. Most of our contractions here have been community exposure, not, not work-related exposure, but we really need to encourage people to keep following the CDC guidelines. Right, and as Churchill once said, this isn't the beginning of the end, it's the end of the beginning. I'm talking about uh, you know managing folk as well. Um, vaccine hesitancy. We've, we've we've moved on now. The vaccine vaccinations are rolling out. We have I think three varieties in the U.S. Um, but we still, Gary, have a lot of people that aren't interested. What do you say to them? There's a reason why there's no more smallpox um, in the United States and no more polio in the United States because we basically have vaccinated our way out of that. We've eradicated those diseases through vaccination. And uh, I strongly encourage people to get their vaccination. And I can tell you that was one of my focuses as IFC president. I testified three times in front of a CDC committee on their immunization practices and once in front of the National Academy of Sciences also that were providing recommendations to the C CDC on immunizations. And uh, my testimony fought for fire and EMS to be prioritized with the vaccinations because we were at the tip of the spear. And I was so happy to see that when the recommendations came out that healthcare providers in fire in EMS were prioritization 1A and then firefighters who didn't do EMS were 1B. But so it's disconcerting and is, is somewhat um, unsettling for me to see that we fought so hard to get our people vaccinated to protect them. And we have people that have chosen our profession not to get vaccinated. And I've heard just a variety of different reasons why. Um, and, 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 you know, I, we, I think we're at, um, I got I, I can look it up while we're talking here, but I know we're, we were around, are we around over 60 million people, 63 million people vaccinated in this country so far? And uh, I, I assure you, if we were having deaths all over the place, that the media would be all over this. And I, I, I've heard of one doctor, I think in Florida had some type of reaction that died. And I don't know if, if that's even related to the vaccination or not. But my point is, is that this vaccination is safe. People are not dying from it. Um, it is, it is uh, something that the only way we're going to get ourselves out of this is to vaccinate our way out of this. So I strongly, strongly encourage our people to get vaccinated. Exceptionally wise words, Gary. Thank you. I'm going to leave that question there. Um, to kind of finish up with, uh, of course, one of the things you mentioned, Matt, was uh, was tip treatment in place. Uh, I'm going to credit Brian Werfel on a webinar I heard last week when he said, you know, what we're doing is treatment in lieu of transport. And I went, hang on a second, that stands for tilt. So we're not tipping, we're tilting. Um, in other words, we've had the, the bill signed by the president. Uh, it's the, they have given CMS permission to consider tilting, providing money for treatment in lieu of transport. But uh, it's not over yet, is it, Matt? There's still work to do. So take us through that process. Yeah, it's not, Rob. And again, this goes back to the alliance that we have. Um, all of us were on a call with CMS several months ago where CMS was trying to figure out how to get EMS treatment in place 
in place, for lack of a better term, using some of the waivers they had, they had put in place already, and it just wasn't working. But we were all on the call. So we all knew that we were saying the same thing. CMS was hearing the same thing, which was even more important. Um, but to some extent, this is earth shattering in that for the first time, CMS has been instructed by our elected officials in, in Congress to give EMS reimbursement for essentially treatment of no transport. Now, Gary and I and others know that this is a very narrow scope. Right. It's as Brian said in his webinar, if we weren't having a pandemic, we would have transported those people, but because we're in a pandemic, there were community protocols that said, don't bring these people to the hospital. Um, very limited focus. However, it gives us the opportunity to demonstrate that treatment in place is safe, it improves patient experience and reduces expenses. And we've got six months maybe to prove that. Well, let's work together and prove it. And maybe it gets modified long-term. Talk protocols though. The legislation was very specific that it gives CMS the authority to waive the requirement for transport, but only if there was a community-based protocol that required EMS to not transport certain patients. So just because the patient AMA'd or just chose not to go to the hospital, if it wasn't part of that community-wide protocol, which is referenced in the EMTALA Act, then the ability for reimbursement is not there. So it's not just purely, hey, we don't think you need to go to the hospital. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I don't want to go. That's not a case where we're going to be able to get reimbursed for. It's got to be part of the, hey, there was a pandemic protocol that said patients with low acuity illness, keep them out of the hospital, do not transport people because of hospital health system capacity issues. Those are the cases that you'll be able to get reimbursed for. Right. So we have to be very, very careful in simple terms. We've arrived at Everest Base Camp, but we're not at the summit just yet. But Rob, I want to mention one more thing. I think for you know the IFC and Gary's leadership and Evan's leadership and NAEMT and the AAA, when, when we met with CMS and CMS told us repeatedly, we don't have statutory authority to waive the transport requirement for payment, that, that was a challenge to us. We said, okay, we'll fix that for you. And you know what? Working together, we fixed it for them. You did. And well done. And thank you. I, I, you know, uh, and if I could just add on, I think it's important, um, and I would, I think Matt would agree with me. One of the things we haven't told your listeners, Rob, is that we, as organizations, met weekly during this pandemic. Uh, we, it just wasn't an occasional phone call. Hey, what are you doing? What do you think? It was we got together weekly every Friday, and we discussed all the issues that were impacting our profession and what are we going to do jointly working together collaboratively collaboratively together to fix this and that that process continues to this day and that's where this tip uh actually materialized out of because we continue to meet to this day and still talk as organizations about issues that are impacting us jointly and what we can do together um, to address it legislatively or whatever else mostly it's legislatively but how we can address that and that is the phenomena, phenomenal thing, I guess that's the best way to describe it, the awesome thing um, that is occurring out of this pandemic is that these associations of the care providers on the street are talking to each other who we represent and we're working on their behalf. No, in, and Rob, for, for once, Matt, the alphabet soup actually spells something and that's cooperation <laughs> and collaboration. 
Yeah, exactly. But Rob, I, I want to also highlight that the conversations that we're having at these Friday meetings has now gone beyond just the coronavirus pandemic. We're addressing issues with compact. We're addressing issues with sequestration. We're addressing issues that are not specific to the coronavirus. And, and that's one of the great things that's happened is that these organizations have learned how to work together. And arguably it's because honestly, we really like each other a lot. <laughs> so it makes it <laughs> you much do. easier to, to do it. Um, but we have learned that working together, we get certainly much farther than we ever have in the past. Good. And on that point, because uh, we're time limited, I'm going to bring it to a close. I'd like to thank you both for uh, having this conversation with me. I think it really matters. Uh, thank you for both, all, all for you and your associations, what you've done in the past. Uh, and uh, I hope we can have, have a further chat sometime later. Anytime, Rob. Yeah, it's been great being with the both of you on here. My thanks truly to Matt and Gary for that. That was a great discussion. If you have any comments or observations, by all means, please leave them in the comments section at the original article at ems1.com, and that's either on the podcast or indeed on the article that I wrote. Uh, I've been Rob Lawrence. You can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1 or over on LinkedIn. That's about all for now. Of course, before I go, I have to say, if you're on the SoundCloud, just hang on for another second because coming along is Chris and Kelly with another edition of Inside EMS. Till next time, bye for now.